Okay, let's check. It's on. Okay, and what about the record? Is that on? And I'll start the record. Okay, it's live on Facebook. I'm gonna take that on. It's live on Facebook. It's live on YouTube. Wow. All right. Okay. And wow. recording is on. Okay, good. All right, we're gonna get started. We're a little, little uh, off today because of all of the. Uh, because Just of all of the uh, technology that we're working uh, on, but we're going to go ahead and read the 119th Psalm. Rhoda, we're live. Uh, let's see here. We got Psalm 119, and we're going to read verse uh, 25 today, I think. Let's see. We're a little off because we're working on the uh, camera equipment still, but here we go. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 25. Dalit. My soul clings to the dust. Provide me according to your word. I have declared my ways, and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wonderful works. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. And then we have a devotional. Today is 13 May. It's been a couple weeks since we do this, did this, so we've got to find 13 May here. And this is 13 May in Christian history. Once upon a time, time a worldly, worldly city became spiritual, even if only for a time. I can't pronounce this guy's name, something like Girolamo or something. Savarolona was born in 1452 in Ferrara, Italy. He was a sensitive and serious boy who was enamored with the study of religion. He started training as a physician, but his idealism caused him to drop out and join the Dominican order to fight the evils of the world. He transferred to the Covenant of San Marco in Florence in 1482 and rose to the position of prior. Savonola, or however you say his name, was deeply distressed by the corruption within the Catholic Church, and what he saw was as a lack of piety among its leaders. He spent his time praying, fasting, and teaching the novice monks. By 1491, he had become a famous preacher. The primary themes of his sermons were God's pending judgment and the need for repentance. He also preached against the worldliness of the clergy, the evils of the ruling class, and the general corruption of secular living. His criticisms of the ruling class made Savarnola, in effect, the spiritual leader of the Democratic Party when it came to power in Florence in 1494. He gained additional popularity when he succeeded in convincing the French king to give up, on, give up occupation of the city after he conquered it. Many considered him to be a prophet. Savarnola used his power and popularity to bring about reform of church and state. He is considered to be one of the early reformers of the Catholic Church. Although he didn't disagree with the organization or teachings of the church, as did later reformers, he did believe in justification by faith and in living a godly life. He became a virtual dictator over Florence, and under his leadership it underwent a startling transformation. Businessmen restored ill-gotten gains. There was much Bible reading, and the churches were crowded. At the same time, Savarnola made many enemies, especially within the clergy. Pope Alexander VI hated Savarnola because he openly condemned the Pope's character and practices and did not acknowledge his authority. 
1495, the Pope summoned Savonarola to Rome, but he refused to go. The Pope then commanded him to discontinue all his preaching. Savonarola obeyed for a while and spent his time studying. However, during this time when he was supposed to be inactive, he succeeded in turning a usually riotous annual carnival into a time of giving to the poor and singing hymns in the street. Next, the Pope attempted to gain control over Savonarola by ordering the monastery of San Marco to be incorporated into a new grouping of covenants that would be more subject to the authority of Rome. Savonarola defied the order. Savonarola, spiritual, his spiritual influence over Florence was so strong that during the carnival season in 1497, children gathered indecent books and pictures and made a bonfire of them in the main square while singing hymns. This bonfire of vanities was an affront to many of the city's moderates. With the passing of time, community support for Savonarola's strict views started to wane, and his power began to erode. Pope Alexander VI sensed the changing heart of the people toward Savonarola and decided to make the most of it. On May 13, 1497, Alexander VI excommunicated Savonarola from the church on the grounds that he had disobeyed the Pope's commands. The Pope ordered Florence to silence the guy or send him to Rome for trial. The fickle public abandoned him as the city government changed hands. The new government arrested Savonarola in April 1498. He was tried for sedition and heresy and was brutally tortured. On May 23rd, why am I reading? Oh, well, he was publicly hanged and his body burned. Oh, I see, May 13th was earlier. In the succeeding years, the majority of citizens of Florence went back to their old ways, yet many permanently changed. One of those was a sculptor named Michelangelo. Savarnola insisted that all Christians, especially religious leaders, practice what they preach. Would your family and friends say you practice what you preach? In our own strength, it is impossible to live a Christian life, but if we gain our allegiance to if we give our allegiance to Christ, he will enable us to live more like him. And they wrote Romans 8, verse 29, God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. Oh, there you go. Somebody doing something uh, against the uh, authority in Rome, which sounds like a good deal at almost any time in their history. Um, what's that? Today's the 10th. Oh, it's the 10th. That's 13th. Is Oh, I see. I read Sundays. Okay, gotcha. I, I had the wrong day. I was looking at, yeah, God knew. And so, yeah, I, I read the wrong day. Apologize for that. Today is May 10th and I wrote the date for the sermon up there. Is, and I'm still on vacation. I'm telling you, my brain is not, it has not come into a gear. Now, I had one thing to read from this particular devotional from last month. And uh, this is the table talk, Reformed theology. Um, this is the desire for new teaching. And I'm just going to read down to the bottom of this paragraph here. It's a couple, actually a couple paragraphs long. But he said, perhaps the most innocent way that false teaching, he's talking about false teachers, right? He's doing an article on false teachers. And this month it was false teachers, right? So they picked one guy who is, uh, his name is, let's see, who did this article? He is uh, Reverend Fred Greco, Senior Pastor of Christ Church PCA in Katy, Texas. He said, um, Perhaps the most innocent way that false teaching can come into the church is when someone attempts to find new and innovative way to understand the Bible. 
The Bible is an ancient book that pastors, elders, and scholars have studied for millennia. It's hard to think of a biblical topic about which hundreds of books have not been written. On the most controversial of topics, such as baptism or eschatology, virtually every theological position has been staked out. Not every teacher is satisfied with describing various historical interpretations or presenting historically biblical truth in a clear and convincing fashion. For some, there is a need to blaze a path where no one has gone before, teaching the Bible in a way that is not dependent on any predecessor. One example of this was, anybody know who is called the father of modern dispensationalism? John Nelson Darby, okay, is his name. Okay, one example of this was John Nelson Darby, whose desire to organize the Bible and its prophecy into a single definitive system produced what is now known as dispensationalism. His teachings, now remember, this is in a book or a, a topic about false teachers, okay? He says, um, organize the Bible and what is now known as dispensationalism. His teachings led to divisions from historical understandings of the church the sacraments, and in some ways, original sin. For others, there is a desire to solve definitively a thorny biblical issue over which theologians have wrangled for centuries. This leads them into uncharted territory, expressing untested ideas and interpretations of the Bible. The Jesuit scholar Luis de Molina thought that he had discovered a new way to reconcile the age-old conflict between theologians about free will and predestination in the new teaching of the middle knowledge. Okay, so he's one said that dispensationalism is a false doctrine, and then he said that um, uh, he's talking about um, new uh, theories about free will and predestination. And he says that he goes and he says that, you know, this has all been in the Bible all along, and people are coming up with new ideas. Does anybody know what the problem with that is? The problem with that is, is that John Calvin was not there at the time of Jesus, was he? He was only a couple hundred years actually before uh, John Nelson Darby. So to say John Calvin, who everybody cites as one idea about predestination, was at one time a new doctrine, right? The idea of predestination goes back to the Bible. It doesn't go back to John Calvin. It goes back to the Bible, just as dispensationalism, meaning we believe that there is a dispensation of grace and there's a dispensation of the law. Those things come out of the Bible. It may have been taught by John Darby later, but it doesn't mean that it's not a biblical doctrine. He's causing all kinds of fallacies in his writings, and that's just two of them. And I thought it was interesting that he would do that because dispensationalism, who was the first dispensationalist? Anybody know? Jesus. Jesus was the first dispensationalist. He authored the Bible, right? Paul was a dispensationalist. So you could say that Jesus, through Paul, wrote about the dispensations. No problem there at all. The problem with understanding Reformed theology and saying that the church has replaced Israel is a problem that goes back to Israel. It goes back to the fact that Israel was under punishment because they had disobeyed the Lord. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, all you need to do is go back and watch the Leviticus 26 sermons, especially the third sermon from Leviticus 26. Israel is out for a time under punishment. God is not wasting time. And so what does he do? The church is brought in. It's the age of grace. And so Jews were saved all the way through there. And we're going to see this in Romans 11 today. This is not off topic. This is topic. This is what Paul is going to be referring to in Romans chapter 11. So it's very important to understand when somebody calls dispensationalism a false teaching that you don't just suddenly get scared and say, well, oh, I better get out of that church. It's not a false teaching. It is what the Bible teaches. 
but there is a reason why dispensationalism kind of ended for almost 1800 years. It's because the Jews were under punishment and the people would never have expected them to be back in the land, except people that actually picked up the Bible and read it like I cited John Gill, like I cited Adam Clark, long before the dispensationalist movement. I cited them in the Leviticus 26 sermons because they understood passages in the Bible are not to be taken allegorically. When it says I'm gonna put those people back in the land, it's not to be taken in any allegorical sense at all. And with that, we will go in now to the book of Romans. Oh, wait a minute, we gotta open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to meet here and to uh, get into your word. We thank you for the wonderful uh, word that you have given us. And we would pray that when we evaluate it, it would be in accordance with your will. But of course, none of us are gonna know everything that's in your word. It, it's simply not possible because you are God and you have written something that is beyond all of us. But we would pray that our doctrine would at least be in line with it, even if we don't understand all the nuances. And Lord, Help us to love our brothers in Christ who are actually saved in Christ, even if they believe differently on certain issues. And I would pray that where they're wrong, their eyes would be opened and they wouldn't uh, charge somebody with a false doctrine when in fact it's your word. And uh, finally, Lord, we want to thank you for the wonderful time that we've had over the past three weeks with Sergio and Rhoda as they've been here at the Superior Word helping out, uh, preparing new camera and audio equipment and also doing wonderful sermons and ministering to the people here. Uh, we thank you for their efforts. We thank you that they have been so, so good to this church and all of the people that have helped support the, the new camera equipment and uh, all of the things that we needed that uh, have brought us to this point. We thank you for that. And then finally, we wanna just pray for anybody that's having difficulties, trials, troubles, financial difficulties, whatever. Lord, you know who they are, you know what their limitations are, and we would pray that you would be with them and help them through those things. And we certainly pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've got very small class today. We've got all kinds of people traveling and uh, people in and out of the area. So uh, we're just gonna have a, a smaller class. Jim won't be here to read, etc. But uh, we'll just pray that all of them that are traveling will be okay in the process. And we're in Romans 11, and we're in verse 10 right now. So uh, let's see here. Romans, Romans 11, verse 10. Once again, Romans 9 through 11 are the verses where Paul mostly speaks of the issue of Israel, the Jewish people. And, you know, I've cited this already about 50 times. I'm just going to say it before we open. When he says Israel, he never, never is speaking of the church. You can tell that directly from the context. And when people say that the church has replaced Israel, it is really not a correct teaching. It's, uh, I would say it is a false teaching, but I wouldn't call the people that teach it specifically false teachers. They're just misguided in their doctrine. They love the Lord. They, uh, they understand things like atonement. They understand the Trinity, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, they do have this particular doctrine wrong. It is incorrect. So uh, Romans 11 verse 10 says, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Okay, now he is equating these verses to Israel. Okay, I'm going to take you back to Romans 11 verse 1 for a second, and I'm going to read it to you. And then you see if you want to insert the church into this verse. Okay, it says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am also an Israelite. So he's talking about Israel. 
And he says, as they cast them away. And he brings it up all the way through this chapter. When he speaks of Israel, he's speaking about Israel who's under punishment, right? It's, do we want to insert the church into that? Is that something that we want to say, okay, we're in under punishment? Of course not. So I'm going to take you back and we're going to read 9 and 10. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Okay, so we have uh, my comments here. Here we have a continuation of the quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. Let me read you that right now so that you know what he is saying. 69, uh, let's see here, 68, 69, verse 9 says, Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and those the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Okay, now I don't know 22 why. 22 and 23. Uh, 20, uh, 22 and 23 of Psalm 69. Thank you. Okay, that was the previous one. There you go. 22 and 23. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Okay, so he's modified it a little bit, but it's basically the same. He's quoting from the 69th Psalm. Thank you for that. I wrote down the wrong no note here when I did that earlier. Um, like the previous verse. These words are not an imprecation by Paul, but rather are declarations of what will come about because of the Jewish rejection of Christ. And they have certainly been fulfilled literally in the past 2,000 years. We just look at their history, look at what Paul has written, the two sync up very well. We can't say it applies to the church in any way, shape, or form. In a direct quote, the first half of the verse says, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. This isn't speaking of literal blindness, and I think most people understand that, but the spiritual blindness, which shows a complete lack of discernment about the issues of Jesus. Now, that all started all the way back at the time of the crucifixion, right? They paid somebody to say that uh, the resurrection didn't happen, remember the soldiers and the entire thing, so the people were deceived about that, that continued on. But even before that, right when Christ was about to be crucified, what did the leaders of Israel say? His blood be on us and on our children. They brought a curse upon themselves, okay? It's something that they did, and then the leaders, and I'm talking about the leaders, but the leaders are the ones who Jesus was speaking to when he says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are in charge of the flock of Israel. When they go astray throughout the whole Old Testament, you get a good king, the people come back. When you get a bad king, the people apostatize. apostatize. They do this because the leaders are the ones that lead people. Go into a church where there is a really good preacher, right? And then you get a bad preacher in there and the people stay. What happens to them? They go right along with the bad preacher, okay? People that are not in the ministry are there to learn, they're to worship an hour or two a week. They're not theologians, and they will inevitably follow what people do unless they are well-grounded already. That's why Bible studies are so important. That's why it's so important to read the Bible, to know what's going on, because the leaders of the people will affect the whole of the people. They called for a curse down on themselves. They lied to the people. The eyes of the people were darkened, and that has permeated Israel now for 2,000 years. And it continues on in Israel to this day. I support Israel. I say this prophecy update after prophecy update. I support Israel because God has placed them back in the land. We know what his plan for Israel is and that he will return to them. That is why I support them. Not because they're right with the Lord. Not because they're doing right things. Not because they've called on Jesus or any issue like that that would be the wrong thing to say but i support them because god has placed them sovereignly back in the land okay 
So um, past 2000 years supports what Paul is saying right here in a direct quote. I said that um, this blindness is a self-inflicted wound. They rejected Jesus and sent him to the cross, but they still had a chance to repent of their ways and acknowledge his lordship proven by the resurrection. Okay, that's in Acts chapter 2. We see it in Acts chapter 4. We see, you know, the people speaking to the people of Israel, even out in the synagogues around the Roman Empire. Paul always went first to the synagogues. Okay, they had a chance to do this. And this, instead, they willingly kept the matter under wraps. And then Matthew 28, 11 through 15 shows us the beginning of this deception, which I just told you about. I'm going to read it to you. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and confessed together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So you can see the beginning of the curse. They rejected Christ. The beginning of the deception. They deceived the people. And it continued on from there. They persecuted their people. They hired Paul to persecute their people. Paul was converted. Many others were not. Okay. The blindness was there before the crucifixion, and it remains even now. Jesus stated the reason for this by his own mouth in John 3, verse 19. So we all know what John 3, verse uh, 16 says, and most of us know what John 3, verse 18 says. But if you go to John 3, 19, if I can ever get back to the right. You got it? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, we're going to read that right out of there. But that's, uh, let's see here, John 3, 19. It says, um, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews, I'm in 119. It always helps to be in the right chapter, Charlie. 319, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Very good, Burke. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People naturally cling to the darkness. And it's not speaking about the dark, literally. It's speaking about the darkness of the spiritual state. So the people would rather be blind and rather live in darkness then see and be in the light. What they desired, they received. Thus, the declaration of the psalm is fulfilled in a self-inflicted manner, once again showing that condemnation is both a choice and yet it is deserved by all. One must willingly choose the light by accepting Christ as Savior as Scripture reveals him. Faith, then, is a step into light. It is not a blind leap into darkness, okay? That is what light of faith is. We can have faith in all kinds of things, and we can say, I'm putting my faith in uh, the Quran. I'm putting my faith in that uh, that stage over there. I'm gonna get up on the stage and I'm gonna perform. I'm gonna have faith that it's not gonna collapse on me. But faith in Jesus Christ is not a step into darkness. It's a step into God's revealed light. He has given us his word. He has said, I'm going to do these things. And all we have to do is say, I believe, what he has said. So there is a little bit of difference in blind faith and biblical faith. Biblical faith is saying, I accept what God has revealed. Okay, he, he's not asking us to put our faith in anything that has not been fully revealed to us. All right. Um, the second half of the quote diverts from the Hebrew, which states, make their loins shake continuously. Instead, Paul says, bow down their back always. The sense is actually the same, though. 
When one is given a heavy burden to carry, their loins will shake from the strain of the load. The result of that strain is to be bowed down. The Greek word means to bend together. The idea is that because of the heavy load, they will bend completely in half. So there you go. You got the same idea. When you got a heavy load, your legs are going to shake. You got a heavy load and your back is going to bend. Paul chose to amend it a little bit, probably for the Greek audience. The picture is one of servitude and it is bondage. The master directs the load, the slave carries it. This load has been the continued burden of both the law and all of the additions which have been added to it. The burden of the observant Jew is simply overwhelming, so much so that many Jews have simply turned and become completely secular. Rather than the freedom which is found in Christ, there is the self-inflicted bondage of the law. Again, this is certain because Jesus specifically offered a better way. In Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, he said this, Come to me, all you who are labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, he's offered them that long before he was crucified. The people didn't want the easy burden. They wanted the heavy burden, the, the easy yoke. They wanted the heavy burden of the law. They chose the law. They chose the leaders of Israel following them, and it cost them 2,000 years of misery, and such is the way of the world. But God, despite their continued rebellion, which he clearly states the reason why in Ezekiel chapter 36, he has brought them back into the land of Israel. He says there, yet not for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have blasphemed among the nations wherever you have went. They're still doing that to this day. They're still doing it in Israel. They're still doing it around the world. And yet the Lord has sovereignly brought them back because the time of punishment has ended. It is the time for the last seven years of the law to be enacted. And after that, then they're going to, which is the tribulation period, then they are going to be exalted. And speaking about that, we were going through um, one of the books of Esther today. I'm not going to say which one or why we were going through it, but it actually seems to point to that very well. And we'll get to that eventually as we continue through the uh, Esther uh, sermons. But uh, it, it's a pretty astonishing book. It, it is laid out in a very marvelous fashion. And uh, uh, that's something that Sergio and I and Rhoda were talking about over the past, I think yesterday and today maybe. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, life application on this verse. Christ is the fulfillment and the end of the law for all who believe. For those who reject him, there is only bondage, disillusionment, and blindness. Be sure to tell those who have not heard the good news that in him there is an easy yoke and a light burden. All right, that's our responsibility. It's, I've said this before, it's been very hard for me to evangelize Jewish people. I've talked to all of my Jewish friends. I've talked to some people that I didn't hardly know as Jews, you know, and normally when I do, I, I make them the offer because they don't want to hear it all. They don't want to hear it all. And they say, I'm really not interested. And I say, you know what, if you allow me this one chance, then I won't do it again unless you ask. And at least I get my foot in the door with that. It kind of puts a block up for later evangelism, but they know you, they know your testimony. If you're living well and you're uh, exalting the Lord, then maybe at some point they're going to say, I really need to know what he, what is motivating him. So at least you get your foot in the door by saying, I just want to tell you once. And because usually they won't even give you one chance. And that's not just Jews, that's anybody. But with Jews, I've just never had any success in evangelizing them because they're set in their ways and uh, 
Paul's words here are vindicated in them every single day, every single day. Anyway, Romans 11, 11. Now he gets back out of scripture. He's been citing scripture for several verses. In, in verse 11, he gets back into questioning us, just as he did right at the very beginning of chapter 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Who is he speaking about? Israel. Israel, the Jewish people. That's right. Have they stumbled that they should fall? His answer? Yes. They've been replaced by the church. That's what Reformed theology would say. The answer is no. Please don't turn off the video while I'm saying that. I'm making a point. Reformed theology, I don't know how they can come to this verse and they say, well, we've replaced Israel. One, he's not speaking about the church in any way, shape, or form. Okay? No way. Certainly not. But through their fall, meaning Israel, who has been consistent separating from the church, through their fall to provoke them, meaning Israel, to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Once again, he makes a clear distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. Israel and the Gentiles. The Bible has those two categories and it doesn't add in a third. Israel, the Jewish people, the circumcision, and the Gentiles. I don't know how they can come to any other conclusion, but somehow they do, all right? And it's not worth listening to their commentaries because uh, we had a missionary in here that we were talking to today and he was saying he would rather side with a completely liberal church than with reformed theology not that he agrees with them he made, was very clear about this but liberal theologians are very consistent nothing matters it's just what we tell you from the pulpit nothing matters he says the problem with reformed theology is that they say this is literal historical grammatical interpretive method and then they go to the next page and they say well we're going to allegorize that and so there's no consistency at all in reformed theology because they're saying this is literal, this is allegorical, and they'll do it even within certain parts of the book of Revelation or certain parts of the book of Daniel. They say that's historical and this has to be taken allegorically. But you can't do that. It's, it's not a consistent hermeneutic. And so, he's, as he said, he, I'd rather at least side with them in their theology saying that at least they have a consistent theology than one that is not consistent always. We have to be consistent in our theology. All right, so 11.11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Paul asks an obvious question based on verses 7 through 10. He's been talking about the fall of Israel. Their eyes are darkened. Their table is a snare and all of these things he's been saying, right? He says, um, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? He's already demonstrated that God has not cast away his people. And he's speaking about Israel. He just made the distinction again. Gentile, Israel. Gentile, Israel. Okay, so there's a definite difference between the two. All right. He has not cast his people away by showing that there was a faithful remnant at his time. Well, what about the future? This is what he's referring to here. The future of the people of Israel. When this remnant generation has passed, what then? To stumble that they should fall implies that eventually they will hit the ground and not be able to get back up. This is not the case at all. It is neither absolute nor is it permanent. It is an absolute because there was and continues to be a remnant. It isn't permanent because the Old Testament promises were to national Israel, not the church. They can only find their fulfillment in the land of Israel 
in the people of Israel. The two are united. When Israel goes back to the land, these things will come to pass. That is what Paul is saying. That is what scripture teaches. All the way through scripture, from the inception of Israel, when they went into the land, and all of the prophetic writings after that, all the way through the book of Revelation. It is Israel the people, in Israel the land, and that is what will make prophecy continue on. That is the key right there, okay? Yes, they have stumbled, but will they be able to stand aright once again? They have not fallen entirely. As an example of uh, an emphatic way of demonstrating this, he exclaims, certainly not. Other versions state this widely translated term. They say, God forbid, or may it never be. And the reason, as amazing as it may seem, is given that through their fall, meaning the Jewish people, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This is Paul's reasoning as to why this has happened and why this is going on right now. God's promises to national Israel are not transferable. They are unconditional in the sense that they will be fulfilled, but they are conditional in the sense that they will not be fulfilled until Israel is found to be in a state of obedience. Have to get that right. Israel is in the land right now, right? It's about Israel, and it's about Israel in the land. But they are not fulfilled yet. Why? Because they are still in a state of disobedience. Until they are in a state of obedience, that these promises of the Old Testament will not come about. And to prove that, we can go once again. Let me see. Do I cite it here? No, I don't. So we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 9, and I'm just going to read you what it says. And we can see exactly what I just said there is actually stated very clearly in Daniel 9. Verse 24. This is Daniel speaking to, I'm sorry, the angel speaking to Daniel about his people and about them being in the land. Seventy weeks are determined for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity. Have they done any of those three things? Absolutely not. I've got some people that live in Israel right now that are here and they're saying they know that it hasn't happened in the land. Now she's shaking her head yes, because she understands that what I said is correct, okay? It has not happened. We can see it in the news every day, but we'll just leave it at that. Now there are three things, more things that they need to do. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Have they done those three things? Absolutely not. They have done none of those six things, but this is what was promised to them. Seventy weeks are promised that these things will be accomplished in them. Not in the church, not in a body which will replace the church, but actually done in the people of Israel. How do we know that? Because it's for your people and your holy city. Daniel was a Jew. His holy city was Jerusalem. Okay, so we know that that's what it's speaking about. And then he gives the timeline and the, the events which will come about to make this happen. He speaks about the coming of Messiah. He speaks about the cutting off of Messiah. And then he speaks about the coming of Antichrist. All of that is future to them now, and they are not in a state of obedience at this point. I'll talk about that a little bit during the prophecy update this week, unless we get another uh, important issue to come up that needs to preempt it. But we'll talk about that probably this weekend, is that the Jews are looking for one thing, and something else is going to come along, which actually they think they're looking for, and they're going to find out that it's not what they're looking for at all. Anyway, um, so that is the state of what is going on in the world. God's promises to national Israel, as I said, are not transferable. They have to be in a state of 
obedience, though, for them to be fulfilled in them. All right. This goes back to the promises and the curses of Leviticus. I said 16 here. It's 26 in Deuteronomy 28. And the reason why I say that is because um, if people follow along with the notes that are online, then sometimes I have typos and stuff. And I don't have a pen to correct it right now, so I'm not going to worry about it. But it's Leviticus 26, not Leviticus 16. And uh, so in his infinite wisdom, God determined to use the salvation of the Gentiles as a point of provocation to Israel. Everybody got that? He's going to bring salvation to the Gentiles, which is something that was abhorrent to them. Absolutely abhorrent that God would save them and not or save the Gentiles and not them as the Jewish people. But God is doing this in order to provoke them to jealousy. All right. It is to bring them to national repentance. As, a, as clear as Paul's statement is here, which let me read it again. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? He's speaking about Israel. Certainly not. See, speaking that Israel has not stumbled so much that they should fall, but that through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Is Romans chapter 11, verse 11, prescriptive for the church age? It's for all of the church age, right? Or is it just prescriptive for the time that Paul wrote it and then it's not prescriptive anymore? It's for the whole church age. He is writing to the people of the church. It is as relevant to you and I today as it was when Paul wrote it. There was no sudden changing from Israel to becoming the church at that time, and it hasn't happened to this day. He's writing to the Gentiles about the Jews, okay? And that's why he uses the word, and I've said it twice already. I'm going to say it a third time, Gentiles, G-E-N-T-I-L-E-S. He's made the distinction. Yes? Will the rapture be the thing that jars them? It may be that that's a, and I will, I will say that, let me see where that verse is. I don't think we're going to get to it today, but I will, uh, I will, uh, tell you where I believe that you are correct on that. It says, um, give me just one second to find it and, um, uh, graft it in, continue. Um, uh, give me just one second. I, I'm coming. It's right here in front of me, beloved. Um, what's, 25, probably. 25. Um, Last part of it. Hang on. Why is near on? No, that's not what I'm looking for. But there is. Um, uh, give me just a second, because I, I want to give you an answer, and I'll let you get the verse. But it, I may have already read it in a, a previous chapter. Give me just one second. I know that uh, it, it's important enough where I should stop the class and get you the verse that I think points to exactly that. Um, What's that? I never had that thought until this moment. Well, well, you had the thought, and I think it's a good thought that the rapture may be the impetus, at least for bringing some of the people, not all of them, because two thirds of them are going to perish in the uh, in the um, uh, tribulation period. A lot of them are going to reject Christ, but those that do, I think the rapture will be an impetus. And let me find the verse that I'm looking for right now. And whoops, I didn't want to do that, but let me go right here anyway. Um, do, 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 Romans, and it'll be one of these. Um, oh, there it is right there. Uh, we're going to get to it today. So I, I, I'm going to make a point of getting to it today. So I, I was looking a little too far down in Romans. And then when we get there, I will read it to you and you'll say, you know, that sounds right. I'm not saying it is right, but it sounds right to me. So to provoke them to jealousy, something is going to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why wouldn't it be the rapture? Why wouldn't the rapture be the impetus for that? I mean, it hasn't happened to this day, and it's been 2,000 years. We claim that we're saved, but guess what? They do too. 
But when they find out that they're not saved and that they're left behind, that would provoke them to jealousy rather quickly. And I do believe that the verse we're going to get to, and I'll highlight that and I'll remember you when uh, we get there, just so that uh, I, I, if we don't get there, which I think we will, then uh, I, I'll just tell you the verse and go home and read it and think about why I said that. Um, okay, so let's see here. Um, yes. Galatians 5. Yes. Uh, it says the stumbling block of the cross. Right. They stumbled at the cross. That's right. Zechariah 12 says that they're going to realize that. Mourn over him whom they have pierced. Over whom they have pierced, yes. Absolutely right. And they still haven't done that. Yeah. So something has to be the impetus to bring them to that point. Something is going to make them say, now, it may be the evangelism of the 144,000. It may be just that they go back at the seven years of tribulation. They finally say, you know what? We need to start reading this book and figuring it out. I don't know. But what she says sounds right. And one of the verses, if we get there, I think confirms it. Okay, I think confirms it. But beyond that, um, uh, what you said absolutely is correct. They're going to recognize it. Galatians 5 ties in with Zechariah. It says they will look. You know, that's a good verse. Let's go there really quickly. What is that? Zechariah what? Okay, Zechariah 12. We'll go there. And I just want to read you that so that. It's one of those verses that's rather confusing. And what do the Jewish people do? They do what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, and they go with the margin notes because the text itself is so hard to follow, and it doesn't make any sense unless you think about Jesus. So it says, um, that will tell them that he's not their Messiah, but I don't think it's going to lead them to Jesus. I don't think that that will be the impetus. I, you know, they've already rejected what he's not. They're going to know he's not the Messiah, but they've been calling people Messiah for 2000 years. They've been doing this for 2000 years. Just because they say this guy isn't the Messiah doesn't mean that they're going to suddenly say, oh, we were wrong about Jesus. Something is going to do it. But here's listen to this verse, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve him as one grieves for a firstborn. So in one verse, it says they will look on me and they will mourn for him. It doesn't make any sense. And so what do they do? They defer to the margin notes, which say somebody says what well, probably means this. Well, that's what the Job's witnesses do. They say this doesn't make any sense and so we're not going to use it. But when you look at it as Jesus being Jehovah, then all of a sudden it makes complete sense. The text is actually correct. So anyway, um, let's go on. We might get to 15 today. We might not. I said the verse. Don't read it now. Anyway, life application. A day is coming when Christ will return and rule in the midst of his people, national Israel. Today, they haven't called on him, but yet he has returned to them, uh, returned them in preparation for that wondrous time. Remember to pray for Israel and remember to support Israel. The times are coming to their fulfillment, as is evidenced by the return of this wayward group of people to their ancient homeland. This is my last, I say it quite often, they're my last prayer every single night. Even when I lump all the other prayers that I say, because I'm so exhausted, about once every three months, I finally say, Lord, I just can't tonight. Please remember all my prayers tonight that I say every other night because I'm just too tired. I say, but... I pray for Israel. I always add them in. They are they are on my heart every single day. These people that God loves so much that he has stretched out his hands to them for thousands of years and they keep rebelling from him. 
I'll talk about that uh, that particular issue more in the prophecy update as well. Pray, shalom Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Israel or Jerusalem. Yes, absolutely. All right. So eleven twelve. We have forty five minutes. And now, if their fall is riches for the world, we have to get to fifteen today because it's all tied in a twelve through fifteen. So we're going to make it. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Again, Paul words and Paul's words to us, excuse me, hang on. Paul's words to us in this verse show brightly and clearly, even to the doubter, that there was a plan for the return of the Jewish people as a collective whole. We need to remember that to a right standing with the Lord. Let me read it again. Think of this collective whole, Israel, not the church. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much their fullness? I don't know how people can come to these verses and make up crazy theology that says the church has replaced Israel. I, I just don't get it. But once again, it's blindness in part has come upon Israel. Blindness in part came upon the church as well. All right. They're going to be returned to a right standing. He just got done telling the Gentiles to whom he is the apostle, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, that Israel certainly hadn't stumbled to a permanent fall. Instead, their stumbling is what allowed the Gentiles to be a part of God's plan of salvation. And in turn, the Gentiles' salvation would, as I said, provoke them to jealousy. Well, how is that come, going to come about? Because it hasn't worked for 2,000 years. So we can't say that God loves the church and he's blessing the church and that's going to provoke them to jealousy. Two points about that. One, it's gone on for a long time. Christians have come, Christians have gone, right? And two, the church is now almost completely apostate. It's not completely, there are good churches all over the place, don't get me wrong. There are lots of good preachers and teachers around the world. But as a whole, as a large body, it has gone so far around the world, so far that it's almost astonishing. Somebody sent me a, a, a video a day ago, yesterday maybe, about some preacher that he was literally vulgar in the uh, pulpit. It, it, it literally vulgar. He's big, charismatic, not, I'm not charismatic, modern church, you know, with the band up there and everything. And he's preaching and he's saying that being gay is okay. He's had this change of heart and all this stuff, but he was being vulgar right in the pulpit. I'm just, I, think of it. Why would the Jews want to come to Jesus when we're doing that? So it's obviously something other than what's going on in the world right now. We are going to provoke them to jealousy. Paul says it. How is it going to happen? Okay, so um, uh, where was I? Collective whole. Israel hasn't stumbled beyond a permanent fall. Instead, their stumbling is what allowed the Gentiles to be a part of the plan of salvation to provoke Israel to jealousy. This obviously hasn't happened yet, and the state of a national conversion, even now, even now, seems unlikely. Would you expect the whole nation of Israel to suddenly call on Jesus? No, no. Would you? No, no. no, of course not. You go over there, and they're at the Western Wall, and they're praying their prayers, and they're, they attack Messianic Jews, people that have come to Christ, right? They're, they're, they shun them. They have to go through a long process in order to come to the land if both of their parents are Jews, etc. Nobody would ever expect it at this point. So what is it that would bring an entire nation to such a point? A good guess would be the rapture of the church. I'm not to the my logic on this yet, but what you said and what you asked is what I think. These are my comments and we're on the same level here. 
This is an event which is very precisely laid out by Paul in his writings and which is actually prefigured in the Old Testament. If this occurs, if you don't know that, if you're watching online and you don't know that the rapture is prefigured in the Old Testament, it's several times I did a sermon on pictures of the rapture in the Old Testament. Okay, if you want that, just send me an email and I'll give you the link to it. Okay, I show you from the book of Genesis, I show you from the book of Ruth, and uh, from the book of uh, one other, oh, Exodus. Three times I give three pictures of it from the Old Testament. Very clear what's happening in those passages as well. So, um, uh, if this occurs, the mindset of Israel may quickly change. A host of Gentiles and a remnant of Jewish Christians suddenly disappearing would certainly be a strong impetus for self-reflection. Regardless of whether this is what happens or not, something will awaken Israel to the truth of their long-rejected Messiah. When they turn back on, when they turned their back on him, it resulted in a fall, which is meant, as Paul says, riches for the world. Their loss meant Gentile gain in two separate ways. First, as God's plan of salvation moved from them to the church, the abundant blessings of Christ have been lavishly poured out on a people who were not a people. Remember when we went through those verses from Hosea and I showed you the chiasm? Here's Israel, and then the people who aren't a people will become my people, the church, and then it goes back, Peter speaks about it, it goes back to Israel. It's very clear when you look at that chiasm from the book of Hosea, what is going on and how God is going to do it. Secondly, while the land of Israel lay in ruins, the Jews have been scattered all around the world. Those nations who received them and tended to them have certainly been lavished with God's blessing in accordance with the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can anybody here deny that? I can't. When the Jews are in land, even if they're disobedient to the Lord, you are blessed. Sarasota has some of the finest uh, ophthalmologists in the world, and they're Jews. They have some of the finest physicians in the world, and guess what? They're Jews. We have some of the finest goldsmiths in the world, and guess what? They're Jews, right? This ring right here came from a Jewish guy. I have got to tell the story. This is what happened. We, I was in the Air Force, and I came back on leave to marry my wife. We kind of ham-hawed around about it till the last day, and on the last day, we finally agreed it's going to happen tomorrow. And it was 9 o'clock at night, and um, uh, I said, oh, we don't have any rings, right? She says, oh, well, let's go get one. I said, okay. So we went out. Now, of course, everything's closed. Every jeweler in Sarasota is closed at 9 o'clock at night. Well, Gulfgate Mall used to be different than it is now. It was all enclosed, but the door happened to be open. I walked in, and there's an old Jewish guy, and he's got his, uh, he, he moved over right next to where the, the, you know where my business was, the Thai restaurant? That was his business. He finally died and they closed, but he, uh, he um, was in his store. The thing was pulled down. It was all locked up, and I banged, and he said, go away, go away, and I said, listen, we're getting married in the morning. We don't have rings, and that guy was kind enough to open up for us and let me buy a ring for me and one for Hidako. And after that, we went over and bought anything we ever bought, we bought from him in his new store. So uh, it, there you go. But he was a wonderful guy. He probably wasn't a believer. I don't know many Jewish believers. I'm trying to think of 
personally how many I know that actually believe in Jesus here in Sarasota. And, you know, most of the Jews I know are not. But yet we're blessed by their presence. So in two ways, the world has been blessed by the Jews, okay, or the Gentiles have been blessed by the Jews. We have received their spiritual inheritance and we continue to receive God's blessing on them, regardless of whether it's deserved or not. Wherever they go, the people prosper. The land prospers okay as a matter of fact i may am i saying that in this week's prophecy update or i may have saved it as an article about exactly that written by somebody completely unexpected exactly that okay so if i say it this sunday great if not maybe i'll do it next sunday if not then it'll be too old by then but uh it's exactly exactly what we're talking about right here in both earthly and spiritual matters their fall has certainly meant riches for the world it has truly received wealth and abundance during this dispensation. But it is, in fact, only a dispensation and not a permanent arrangement. Please understand that. Dispensations come, dispensations end. That's the way it goes, okay? It is a temporary thing called the church age. It is not this ongoing forever thing, okay? Um, this is seen in Paul's next words where he says, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Absolutely. Two contrasting words are used. The first failure is the word hetema. It indicates a diminishing or a degradation, a, re a removal of their special privileged status. And then the word fullness is the word pleroma. This is a filling such as a cup. You take your cup and you start filling it, okay? And then you come to a fullness. What is being relayed is that the current arrangement, the church age, I'm sorry, Reformed theologians, it is not permanent. It is temporary. Regardless of how the church perceives itself, there is certainly a lack in what should be without the state of Israel being in favor with God. There is a definite lack. Thus, without them, the cup is not full. Albert Barnes, he lived from 1798 until 1870. He lived long before the reestablishment of Israel, but he took this passage at face value. Not knowing what God would do after his lifetime, his comments on this verse state, here's Albert Barnes, in what way or when this shall be, we know not. But it is easy to see that if the Jewish people should be converted to the Christian faith, they would have facilities for spreading the truth which the church has never had without them he understood that that they would be and that when it happened that the world would receive it in a way that it never had before and that's where the 144,000 come in it's very clear he just didn't go to the end of the bible to read before he gave his commentary but he's absolutely right actually he probably misunderstood that because 144,000, he's probably thinking it's something that happened in the past or whatever. But he understood that without the Jews as a part of this dispensation, without them in their fullness, the cup is not full. Okay? After this, he listed four major re reasons why this is so. This is going to be all Albert Barnes. With relatively few changes in his thoughts, the truth of his comments still hold true. His insights, without realizing there would be a regathering of the people to Israel are worth noting. I made a few changes in here, but here's what he says in uh, substantially. One, they are scattered in all nations and have access to all people. Okay? He's saying what, what a benefit that would be. If they became Christians, they'd be able to evangelize all over the world. Even though they're moving back to the land of Israel, that 
still hasn't changed. Why? It's because when you are in the land, you do what? Anybody? You learn the language of the land. You go to Israel and you go into a bar and there might be 50 people and 32 of them speak different languages from where they came from, right? They also speak Hebrew, so they're speaking to each other, but they, listen, when Israel wants to get intel on a nation, they have what's called human, human intelligence. America used to have tons of it, and they've gotten rid of that over the years, especially under our previous president. We no longer have that precious human intelligence, all right? We think that satellites above are going to take care of all of our, our issues. That's not the case. You need to have people on the ground. You need to have human intelligence. Israel has it. They have Jewish people in Iran today that speak Iranian, that look Iranian, that are supporting Israel. They have them all over the world, and they have in their land people that know every language from every land that they came from. Well, guess what? If that is turned to good for evangelization, all of a sudden you've got a wonderful weapon for getting the word out, right? Okay, so that's one. This is Albert Barnes thinking this through. How long before Israel was back in the land? Two, their conversion after so long unbelief would have all the power and influence of a miracle performed in view of all nations. All of a sudden the people say they've rejected this guy for 2000 years and now they believe? Maybe we should check this out. So just Albert Barnes sitting there thinking this through, it would be seen why they had been preserved and their conversion would be a most striking fulfillment of the prophecies. Exactly as Paul said, and it's happening, wow, Let's find out what's going on. Three, they are familiar with the languages of the world. Oh, see, I brought that up and I forgot that I got that from him. Okay, and their conversion would at once establish many Christian missionaries in the heart of all kingdoms of the world. It would be kindling at once a thousand lights in all dark parts of the earth. Great observation. And finally, four, the Jews have shown that they are eminently suited to spread true religion. It was by Jews converted to Christianity that the gospel was first spread. Now imagine one Paul and multiplied by 144,000. Imagine it, okay? He goes on. Each of the apostles was a Jew, and they had lost none of their ardor, enterprise, and zeal that always characterized their nation. Their conversion would be, therefore, to give the church a host of missionaries prepared for their work familiar with all customs, languages, and climes, and already in the heart of all kingdoms, and with facilities for their work in advance, which others must gain only by the slow toil of many years. Think of Ray and Jess, who are going over to PNG, and it's going to take them years and years and years to do it. Probably there's a little synagogue of three Jews over there right now that will be able to do in two weeks what it'll take them 12 years to do right? Because there are Jews everywhere. I don't care where you go. You go to the darkest heart of China and there will be a little synagogue. Yes. Netanyahu, however you say Netanyahu. had those films from oh, Iran yes. that showed all of the secrets that yep. they've had about the nuclear stuff. Yep. Mossad did that. Absolutely they did. Somebody had to do it. Somebody had human intelligence yeah. on the ground to be able to get all that out. Plus they had all the spy stuff as well. But you can't get what you need without they had, real human they had intelligence. Videos of this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, and that's it, it. Just imagine them now taking that and turning it for Christ instead of for you know self-defense. 
things would really change. Okay, life application. We got 30 minutes. If great scholars of the past could anticipate the Jewish conversion to the true faith of Christ, meaning people like Albert Barnes, Adam Clark, John Gill, how much more should we who now see the marvel of the reestablished nation? Ezekiel 37 shows that Israel would first become a united people again, and only after that would they receive the Spirit. Verses 11 through 14 in Ezekiel 37. Have faith that God is readying this select group for spiritual rebirth. Pray for them to see what for so long they have been blinded to. Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Israel. Um, 11.13, let's see what we have here. For I speak to you Gentiles, once again, he's not speaking to Israel. The church hasn't replaced Israel. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. The context of what is being said in Romans 11.13 is important. Paul has been speaking about the Jewish nation's rejection of Christ which resulted in the message going to the Gentiles. They, in turn, readily accepted it. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is a ministry for their benefit, but which is ultimately intended to lead back to the conversion of the Jews. We don't want to miss that. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, but he has the final goal of his ministry is to bring them back, the Jewish people, back to Christ. In other words, his work should be taken as an interim ministry. Paul's ministry is an interim ministry. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Okay, everybody understand that? Because the church hasn't replaced Israel. I've probably said this 50 more times in this, this class alone. I want people to understand it. Albeit of unknown duration, when Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, we had no idea that it would be 2,000 years. Paul's last letter to Timothy, he's like thinking, my time is up and the Lord's Coming is near and all of this. It sounds like he thinks he's coming soon. He had no idea that it would be 2,000 years. That was God's sovereign choice. Okay? He knew how long he was going to do it. He knew how long Israel was going to be punished. When one ended, the other one would come about. All right? The church has its role during this dispensation, but it is not the end of the story concerning God's kingdom on earth. The restoration of Israel will initiate that. Only when Israel, as a nation, calls on the Lord will the kingdom age come. This was explained in some detail in the Romans 1-1 commentary. If you didn't watch that Romans 1-1, go back and watch it. I talk about that. Paul here first notes his ministry to the Gentiles. He says, I speak to you, Israel. No, I speak to you, Gentiles. He was personally commissioned by Jesus in Acts 9 verse 15. This ministry was to bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. In his usual custom, when he arrived at a new city, he would first go to the synagogues and speak to the Jewish believers there. However, his ministry was unique in that it was intended for Gentile instruction. He explicitly states it here with the words, Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. This same thought is conveyed time and time again in the New Testament, such as in Acts 15, 12, Galatians 1, 16, Galatians 2, 7 through 8, Ephesians 3, 8, 1 Timothy 1, 7, 2 Timothy 1, 11, and elsewhere. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. All of his personal letters are written to Gentile churches and Gentile peoples. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus. 
and finally Philemon. Hebrews, which is unnamed, is an explanatory and transitional letter between Paul's church-age letters to those which follow. Its title, Hebrews, shows that it is intended for a Jewish audience. It is intended to wake them up and to show them that the Old Testament is only pointing to the greater work of Jesus Christ. The letters by James and Peter are directed specifically to Jewish believers. John's letters, like his gospel and the book of Revelation, follow a unique path which combine a message to both Jews and Gentiles, and Jude follows the example of John. I've done that on the board. I'll do it again sometime. I'm not going to do it today because I want to get through verse 15 if we can. But the Bible itself, the structure of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation shows us the pattern of redemptive history. It shows us the dispensation of the law. It shows us the dispensation of grace. It says that it's based on Noah's blessing to his sons. He says, Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, what does that mean? That means you have a tent of Shem here, you have a tent of Shem here, and Japheth is in the middle. Guess who Japheth is? Paul's writing letters to the Gentiles. All of those churches are sons of Japheth, okay? Japheth will live in the tents of Shem. And who is it that's carried the message of the church? Mostly Japheth descendants, England, America, etc., throughout the, or the Latin people as well, the Greek people, all of those were sons of Japheth. So that is what that prophecy is saying. The Bible bears this out. The structure of the Bible gives us a pattern of what is going to happen in redemptive history. Okay, so um, let's see here. Hebrews, the, uh, the great work of Christ. And then I said, okay, by noting the structure and layout of the New Testament, Paul's statement becomes quite clear. The message went first to the Jews. After that, Paul was introduced to transition the message to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 1 through 12, Peter. Acts chapter 13 through 28, Paul. It's very clear what's going on there, okay? Uh, Paul was introduced, but his writings have the final intent of leading back to the Jews, as will be noted in the coming verses. And because of this astonishing pattern, which is beautifully laid out in the structure of the Bible and lived out through Paul, he says... I magnify my ministry. His ministry is a turning point in redemptive history, which ushered in, so far, 2,000 years of Gentile conversions. And yet, his writings are intended to have a profound effect on the Jewish people as well, turning their hearts to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. How is it possible? How is it that, where am I? How is it that uh, possible when he writes, uh, what he writes is directed to the Gentiles. Let me read that again because I obviously didn't type it very well. How is it possible when he writes, what he writes is directed to the Gentiles? That still doesn't read correctly. Anyway, because eventually it will be introduced that the Gentiles had it right. Okay. And how and when the nation of Israel will realize this is yet unknown. She has a speculation which I kind of agree with. But as noted in the Romans 11:12 commentary, it may be the rapture of the church, a tenet taught by Paul. He teaches it in 1 Corinthians 15. He teaches it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He alludes to it in a couple other spots. Whatever it is, whatever it is, when it occurs, Israel will finally open their eyes concerning their Messiah, Jesus. Life application. Paul magnified his ministry, not himself. Everyone has something, something which can be done for the Lord, but it shouldn't become a point of boasting except in how it glorifies the Lord. Okay.
11:14. Let's see what we got. We're going to get we we got 20 minutes and uh, we're going to get it. Verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Once again, he's not speaking to the church. He's not the flesh of Gentiles who he's writing to. He's of the flesh of Israel. He wants to provoke them to jealousy. He knows that someday their fullness will come in, but in the immediate, he wants some of them to come to know Jesus. The process of how salvation occurs is debated over, and strange views have arisen throughout the years concerning it. In Genesis 5, it says, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This verse says little about the process which elicited this favored status, but what it does say is sufficient. Enoch walked with God. It is apparent that this was a volitional act of his free will. You can't insert what Reformed theology teaches into Enoch. You cannot do it. It is impossible. It says Enoch walked with God. It never says God regenerated Enoch in order to believe, and so he believed, and then he started to walk with God. That is an abuse of the Bible when you do things like that. But that's what they must do. I uh, read a commentary by a doctor of theology one time about Reformed theology and how we're converted, we're regenerated, the way R.C. Sproul says. And I wrote him a letter, and I said, I, I nothing belligerent. I just said, can you explain to me Enoch? This is what it says. And what did he do? He took all of his New Testament theology, he cut and pasted it, and he sent it to me, and he says, this applies to Enoch. That's an abuse of the Bible. They, the Jews did not have the New Testament, and that was part of their scripture. They didn't have it. This is something that came much later, and to say, we're going to insert this into here is a complete abuse of how you interpret the Bible. Enoch walked with God, and God took him. Okay, that's it. It was an act of the free will. Likewise, in the very next chapter of the Bible, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every evil intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This was a voluntary turning away from God, and it is highlighted by the contrasting fact that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah voluntarily chose the right path. Here in Romans 11:14, we see this concept fully supported by Paul's zeal for his own people, his countrymen according to the flesh. He just stated in the previous verse that as the apostle to the Gentiles, he magnified his ministry. This was so that if by any means he might provoke those, provoke to jealousy those who are of the Jewish race. Sounds like an act of the free will to me. Paul's efforts would be utterly futile if free will wasn't a consideration in our salvation, but it is. You actually have to go to John Calvin in order to come up with this doctrine. Remember I told you this guy said that dispensationalism is a false teaching because it's something new? Guess what is new? John Calvin's tulip. That is new. That was never taught. It was never considered. It was something that he came up with and people have run with it since his time and it is incorrect according to the Bible. You cannot take that and insert it into the Old Testament, which is all they had in order to understand their theology and their walk with the Lord. You can't do it. So anyway, when people say that something is false, they need to understand what the Bible actually says about it before they call it false. Free will is not false. Dispensationalism is not false. Both were taught by God. What did he say to the people in the garden? 
You can eat of any tree of the garden, any tree in the garden that you want, but on the day, uh, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was an act of the free will. Then everything since then, good and bad, has been an act of the free will. God revealing himself and saying, come to me if you choose. Okay? Anyway, uh, let's see here. What would be the point of God directing the salvation of people, as the Bible records, if free will is excluded from the process? If free will is excluded, why have prophets continually called out for repentance year after year for millennia? Why meticulously record the generations of humanity, the dispensations of time, and the covenants made between God and man? Why would the prophetic word be issued that a Messiah was coming and then provide countless pictures and patterns for us to study so that we could be sure of who he was when he arrived? And why send apostles and prophets after his coming, who then called out and begged for people to hear and receive the truth if God is going to exclude free will in the process? Why go through any of that? It makes no sense. It is completely incorrect. Not only does it make no sense, it makes the entire process out to be a sham. Why have anybody call for repentance? Why have anybody go out and evangelize other people? Why? It would be the most ineffective manner that one could think of. That is the result of what John Calvin teaches. If God excludes man's free will, none of this would have been necessary. But man bears God's image, and he has been given a choice to accept or reject the good news which God has prepared in the sending of his son. For Paul's broken heart, his people Israel had all but rejected this good news, and so he was selected by the Lord to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The message would continue on and the banner would be passed from Israel to the Gentile nations. The message, uh, Paul knew this, but he also knew that his message could still have an effect on his people. It could provoke them to jealousy and it could save some of them. The free will of man is not excluded in the process of salvation. It is highlighted. The fact that there is a Bible at all shows us that this is so. God hasn't wasted his time. Instead, he has used the most effective way of all to call his creatures back to himself. It serves the greatest good for the greatest number, and it demonstrates wisdom and love for the creatures who have voluntarily turned from him and whom he desires to voluntarily turn back to him. Life application. Salvation is an offer from God and a choice by each person. After salvation, the choices do not stop. Will we choose to grow in Christ or stagnate? Stagnate. Will we worship God at church or sit at home and watch football? Will we read our Bible or will we play on the computer? Use your post-salvation choices wisely. Heavenly rewards and losses await. Okay, I'm going to rush through. We got 15 minutes and we actually want to leave a couple minutes early because we have something to pick up. Uh, so. We're going to go verse 15, and we'll see if we can get it done in just 10 minutes. For if they're being cast away, this is speaking of Israel, if they're being cast away as reconciling of the world, which it is, right? What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, the introductory conjunction four is given to tie back to verse 15, tie verse 15 back to verses 11 and 12, which spoke of the fall and then the fullness of the Jewish people. 
verses 13 and 14 were related to Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, which carries with it the secondary purpose of provoking Israel to jealousy. When this is effected, there will be great things in store for the world. Paul says, if they're being cast away, this is their fall. Their being cast away is their fall. Think of Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden. That was their fall. Well, the Jewish fall came when they rejected their Messiah. Okay, The nation of Israel failed to believe in Christ's work, and so they rejected him. And because they rejected him, God rejected them. Their fall, though, is what meant for reconciling of the world. Where was that? I just lost my place. Yeah, their fall, though, is what meant reconciling for the world. This ties directly back to verse 12. Their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, as Paul says. Paul is restating these things after the explanation of the purpose and intent of his ministry. That dual purpose that we noted a little while ago to demonstrate that something even greater is anticipated in the future. Here's the thought. Okay, follow this. One, Israel was cast away for disobedience. That was a tragic occurrence. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Two, because of Israel's fall, the greater good would be served by bringing reconciliation between the Gentile world and God. Everybody got that? Their fall meant our reconciliation with God. The word reconciling is the Greek word katalage. This word in, found in Romans 5.11 is translated as atonement by many translators. The atonement of Christ's shed blood was made possible because the Jews rejected him. If they had accepted him, the obvious result would have been the immediate initiation of anybody? The kingdom age. Thank you. The church age would never have occurred. That is implicitly stated in the Bible. The kingdom would have come in and there never would have been salvation of the Gentiles. Okay. Three. Therefore, if the fall was tragic, but it led to something wonderful, how much more wonderful will it be when they are restored? This is Paul's thinking. What is offered as a question by Paul in some translations is meant as an exclamation. When Israel finally accepts their long-rejected Messiah, there will be life from the dead. This is taken in two ways by scholars. The first is that it is speaking of the spiritual revitalization of national Israel. They're already once again a people, but they are spiritually dead to the things of God found in Jesus Christ. However, a time is prophesied in numerous Old Testament passages that they will again be quickened to this spiritual vigor. One key passage is Ezekiel 37. I said it earlier. I'll read it to you now just so you know what I'm talking about. Ezekiel 37 and verse 11 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. And then verse 14 says, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Okay, national restoration, spiritual restoration. One comes before the other, okay? Based on the surrounding context in this passage from Ezekiel, this is certainly speaking of a spiritual awakening, not a literal resurrection. 
the banner of all spiritual matters will be passed back to the church, to them from the church, which had carried it during their time of rejection. However, this is certainly not the only life from the dead that Paul is speaking of. Paul's letter is being written to spiritually alive people. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit and have the assurance, the guarantee, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you believe in Jesus Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of your redemption of eternal life. If this is so, then Paul's words must have more than just a national Israel fulfillment, or they would be worded differently, wouldn't they? Everybody see the logic there? The truth is that there is a point in prophetic history which will bring about life from the dead in a literal sense. It isn't just one single moment, but rather an epoch of time. At first, there will be the rapture of the church. This is explained in detail by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. This is physical life from dead bodies, a resurrection. At some point, probably due to the rapture, Israel will wake up from their slumber and realize who Jesus really is. I'm going to mention the guy in the Prophecy Update this week. Most people already know about it, but I'm going to mention him anyways as Naphtali. A Christian has been brought into Bibi's cabinet in Israel. Okay, Netanyahu now has a Christian in his cabinet, and a lot of people weren't happy about it. That guy will disappear someday if he doesn't die before the rapture. And when it happens, people are going to wonder what happened to this guy. Okay, so I'm just going to mention him kind of in a short comment about him, but uh, it's important what's happened there. Okay, so that's uh, the rapture. It's physical resurrection. Okay, Israel will wake up. They'll realize what's going on. And this will bring about a spiritual revival, life from the dead. After this, at the ending of the seven-year tribulation, there will be another resurrection from the dead. This is noted in several Old Testament passages and in Revelation. Daniel 12, 1 through 3 speaks of it. Here, let me read you that. We're going to be here right till the end. We'll be a couple minutes later picking up our, our stuff that we have to go do. But uh, Revelation 12, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. That's the tribulation. Even to that time, and at that time, your people, Israel, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then it says in Isaiah 26, something that people use as a rapture verse, but I would disagree with that. Anyway, Isaiah 26 and verse 19, which says, um, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead okay and then the new testament john writes of it in revelation 20. here's what he says in revelation chapter 20. okay who is isaiah writing to when he wrote those words to the jewish people that's right so you know it, it could be rapture verses but i just i wouldn't go that far we got plenty of other things that will show us the rapture from the old testament we don't need to take things not directly uh stated in that way 20 it says and i saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them then i saw the souls this is right at the end of the tribulation period 
okay, the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Rapture is not the first resurrection. The rapture is something unique for the church age, okay? The first resurrection happens after the tribulation period, okay? This amazing epoch of time is coming, and probably soon. The graves of Ezekiel 37 have been opened, and there is a great standing army in Israel. The ancient prophets noted that only after this happened would they then be given the spirit. It could never have happened before, and it hasn't happened yet. So we are at the cusp of amazing events in history. Life application, and we are done. Through the rapture of the church, although the rapture of the church is dismissed by many theologians, it is explicitly taught in Scripture. One must over-spiritualize much of the Bible to reject what is so carefully recorded for our learning. Israel is back in the land, and so these amazing events are coming. May they be soon. Okay, let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then uh, we'll all head to our respective places of sleeping. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to open the book of Romans, and I would pray that uh, the uh, things that we have said today from Romans are correct, they are accurate, and that the dispensational model is something that you invented, that you devised in your mind before the world began, and that we are living in the dispensation of grace, that we have not replaced Israel, and that the Bible is literal and true concerning what you have promised to them, for them, in their land, and with Jesus at the helm, ruling from Jerusalem. It is a wonderful promise. It is something that uh, it would be a shame to be spiritualized in any way, shape, or form to not see Messiah ruling among the people that he died for and who rejected him, but who will someday come to be his people once again. We pray that that day will be soon. We pray that many will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus even before the rapture. But whatever the impetus is that will turn their hearts to you, we pray that it will be greatly effective and that Israel will be exalted in the millennial reign as you rule among them. We pray this, that you will be glorified, that they will be built up as a people once again, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. And we're going to go, let's see here. Uh, break.